are so glad that uh, you are all here this morning. Um, we have a fantastic opportunity uh, today. I personally, especially for me, uh, my, my sister Diane and her husband Bill and then their children Seth and Meredith are here today. Uh, they've been here, this, they got in Friday night, spending the week with us. And um, they, I have mentioned them here before. Uh, one of the key things for me uh, in my personal walk with Jesus Christ was it was Diane and Bill's wedding um, that had a huge impact on me because as I watched them get married with a marriage centered around Christ, I remember sitting there thinking, I'll never have that. And, and God really used just the life that they had, the, even just their wedding, to make a major impact on my life. And then after they got married, um, uh, Bill, uh, just his, his walk with Jesus and the, the demonstration he had and the courage he had just to speak truth into my life has been, was a huge, again, major impact in me being able to make some hard decisions uh, to follow Jesus Christ. Um, they live in Jackson, Mississippi, so pray for them. Uh, I'm just so glad God didn't call me to Jackson. <laughs> anyway, they're not from there, but they live there now. Uh, Bill is a professor of theology at Wesley Biblical Seminary down in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, for those of you who actually know me, he's the guy that I always ask the questions to. You know, so uh, when I say, well, I don't, if I don't know, I'll just call Bill. Um, and uh, so I am very honored um, and very privileged to introduce you uh, to Bill Yuri, who's going to be giving our message today, and been so excited for you as, as, as the church that I love, the body that I'm a part of, been waiting for this day for you to get to hear from him. So would you welcome Bill up front. Thanks, man. Brother, I love you. Hey, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. You know, there are two strikes against you when you start. The guy says he's a seminary prof. He's from Mississippi. Everybody goes, oh, great. You know, but um, listen, I'm excited. I'm, I'm so excited. I can't even think. I'm so happy to be here. My mind just scrambled eggs this morning because I would much rather hear Dave preach than me preach any day. And I know you feel the same way, but he asked me to. And I think what I'm doing here is I'm earning my vacation. That's what I'm doing right here. So thank you for letting me do that. Now, I, I think, what, if I'm not mistaken, you all are moving into a, a new section of, uh, you have these marvelous uh, lists of sermons, things that you do together to kind of focus. And it's a great thing that you all do, the staff here and everything. And so as an entrance into that, Dave said, why don't you share something about how you have, what you've learned over your short life with Christ. I've known the Lord Jesus for about 35 years, and it's just just beginning to to kind of get away at the edges of, of who he is and what he wants to be to me. But as I thought about this group, and I have to tell you, you just are so cool. Everything I know about you is just, you're cool. Mississippi is frumpy, but you're cool. So I'm trying my best to be cool, but I know I can't be cool. So just be gracious to me. Let me be from Mississippi. But I want to share a bit about wherever you are with Jesus, cool or not, these things to me have been the face of love to me. These four things. Now, I'm sure there are 55,000 more things. But if you were to ask me, if I were to meet, you mentioned LDS before, if I were to meet a Mormon and they were to ask me, what, what is this uniqueness about Christianity? Because Mormons are really, really moral people. Buddhists are really moral people, good Buddhists. Uh, Muslims are, are, are good moral people. What, what's the difference? What's the big deal? I think I would say these things, and, and every religion's got something like this, but the Christian religion has, a, has an edge to it based upon the incarnation that is irreplaceable. There is nothing like it. 
But I want to say before I get going, do not hear me say in what I'm saying today, and I could make the mistake of doing this, I want you to work harder. That is not what I'm talking about. That's, that's what Buddhists do. They work harder. Now, you and I have to work. We have to respond. But everything I'm talking about today is a gift of grace. It's a gift of the Lord Jesus. What are you doing? Uh, that's, that's a pretty freaky thing right there. Uh, where's the protection guy now? Where were you when I needed that? Yikes. Um, she's okay? All right. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Now, it, let, let's start with sin. Every preacher starts with sin and it gets better. Okay, let's start there. But I learned something from Martin Luther that, that I, I've never gotten over. I, I forget where it was in one of his sermons. He said, you know, sin, sin basically is self-curvature. It's, it's, it's curved in on yourself. So every religion in the world tries to get us, because we know there's a problem with us, we try to get turned outside. So we do things, we work hard, we, we obey laws. Well, the Christian knows the same thing. There's something about me that's just simply curved in on me. I need somebody to change me. I've tried to change me. I can't change me. So all of a sudden, out of the blue, somebody wakes up and says, I think this Jesus thing is real. I, I believe he, ca- he came from heaven, became a man, so that he could die and rise again, and he could change me by the power of that resurrected life. Now, when somebody gets to that point, you're already distinct from any other religion. But when that happens, something happens inside this being. All of a sudden, you, you think to yourself, that self-turn, that curve in on myself, that just is not right. Every time I do that, I wreck somebody else's life. I wreck my life. I wreck my wife's life, my children's life. I wreck everybody's life. So most Christians, if they're honest, will say, well, I've got this thing about me where I feel like I'm nice on Sunday. I can, I can accept the guy from Mississippi for a few minutes, but when I go to lunch, I feel this thing like, oh, man, it's, it's about me. It's too much about me. Now, it's interesting to me. My wife tells me I make up words, and I'm sure that's not true. I don't make up words. But I'll tell you, Paul makes up words, the Apostle Paul. And there's a, there are a couple of interesting things. One, I found that in Greek, now I'm not going to do Greek, so just don't freak out. Everything's all right. But in Greek, there are very few words that have to do with interrelationship, which, which makes sense. I mean, you've got Plato, you've got Aristotle, and they're talking about the ideas and, the, and divine, but there's no relationship. There's no possibility, if you have a heart turned towards your own mind, your own heart, that you can never think about other people. I don't care how nice you are, if you're not transformed by Jesus Christ, there's always going to be a hook, a hook in it which says, I want you to do this for me. So Paul, in Greek, had to make up a whole new vocabulary. Because when Jesus came, he changes the whole world. He changes the way you talk. So he adds, makes up words with the word with. With me, with suffering, with agonizing. It's astounding. 27 of those things he makes up. That's a great study sometimes to look through. So even the language of Christians is, is different. We think not about me first, but how can I live with you? The face of love, the body of Christ. It's an astounding thing. And I'll have to tell you, 35 years in, I'm just barely understanding that because it's a freaky thing. That means I got to live with you. And, and you got to live with me. And you already don't like me. I can tell some of you are like, I, I got to get a cup of coffee right now. I got I to get out of the room. And, and yet we're the body of Christ. How do we live like that? 
So as I, as I think about that huge, beautiful picture, the, the body of Christ, the face of love, this Christ-centered, spirit-filled love that is radically different from any Buddhist love, radically different from any Hindu kind of love now. We're not talking about nice American love. We're talking about Jesus-centered love. What's that look like? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to look at a couple of verses. Romans 15, 7 is the place I want to start here. Romans 15, 7. Notice how powerful this is. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now that to me, I mean, we can just stop right there, but I'm not going to stop today. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Now the word accept is really powerful. It's the word which means to take into one's life, to incorporate into your own being, to take somebody who's outside of you and to say to that person, I don't care what you bring, I want to take all, I want to encircle your life with my heart and my mind. I want to bring you, I want to accept you into my own mind and heart. Now you say, well, Bill, that sounds like pretty, you know, like anybody who loves. Yeah, but wait. Now this word, I, want to, I, I do have to teach you one Greek word. Can I do that? All right? I've been around the world long enough to know there are two words everybody knows. Everybody in the world knows the word Coca-Cola. You know that. That's the first word. And the other thing that people know is the word Alleluia. So Coca-Cola, Alleluia. You can kind of get anywhere in the world with those two words. At least understand each other. There's another word that sounds like Alleluia. And I want, to, I want you to say it back to me just so I know you're awake. All right? It's a Greek word. The word is Alleluia. Can you say Alleluia? All right, that's the word I want to focus on today. That's what that word, accept alelon, accept one another. Now that word, one another, is used exactly a hundred times in the New Testament. One another. I've looked at all of them several times because I feel like that's a word that the New Testament doesn't make up, but it uses in a way that nobody else in the first century would even think about. I don't live for anybody else. I live for me. My life's about me. What can I get? How can I... Make myself look good. It's not about our one anotherness. It's about meanness. And when Jesus comes and smashes into reality in his loving, self-giving care, all of a sudden somebody says, wait a minute, my entire life is not about can I step back here and make sure you accept me. No, I am to accept a person outside of me just as Christ accepted. Now I'm going to tell you, that freaks me out. Because I know how Jesus accepted me with all of my junk. But when he says to somebody else, like you in the room or you on the stage, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. That blows my mind. Now, I've been, I've been thinking about this word a long time, accepting one another. I, uh, I know that you love Dave. And I've known Dave for about 26 years, a quarter of a century. It's astounding how old I am. In fact, I'm trying not to use my glasses so I won't look any less cool than I feel. But anyway, I may have to in just a moment. I've known Dave, but he's not always been that nice to me. He's nice now, but he has not always been that nice. I used to have to go home to take his beautiful, well, my beautiful girlfriend, fiance, home to Michigan. And when I would go home, I'd have to go through this gauntlet every time of these four huge Nelson dudes. And uh, Dave was always smiling. But you know that smile that Dave can get when he's checking you out. He's smiling, he's checking you out. He's got that little look in his eye. He's really... And he was checking me out seriously. 
And so were his six foot four brothers, six foot five brothers. Everybody's six, 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 six. You know, I'm passing these dudes. And they, they did the whole mean thing, you know, comments and didn't talk and checked me out on the basketball court, beat me to death out there. They just loved that kind of stuff. Smiling the whole time. Well, I had not known in, their, in that family what I would say any kind of acceptance. I think it was the first or second time I'd been up there. You'd have to know Dave's mom, beautiful mom, wonderful person, changed my life in many ways. I remember one of the end of those week, hard weekends, and they were always kind of hard. Dad, Dave, all these guys. On our way out, mom would came, she kind of swept out of the kitchen. She came toward me, and I'd been a seminarian now for four, about four years, and I'd been a monk for four years. You know, that super spiritual thing where you don't date, you're so spiritual. And I, w- I was trying, you know, to keep myself pure and all that stuff. And, and uh, that, this woman, this precious woman came around out of, the, out of the kitchen and she kissed me on my lips. And I thought to myself, woman, these are monk lips. You, you, these are holy lips. You can't kiss these lips. You know, and she kissed me. And, and I felt in that moment like I was totally accepted. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. But if you have someone in the world that, where they're not looking at your degrees or your abilities or your gifts or how cool you are, they just accept you for who you are. And every time I'd go home, every time I'd be near mom, I'd sense it was almost like years of garbage, years of junk just sort of melted off of my being, just in her presence. I know it wasn't her, but it was Jesus in her. Just this an amazing acceptance in her face and her heart her mind, I just knew I was ex- welcomed. I was welcomed into her heart. I got so excited about going to get those kisses, I used to pucker up about 10 miles out, just on the way home, just getting ready for that sweet, sweet kiss. That's interesting. You know, I married, we married our daughter off in January. That was a freaky thing for me, you know. But I'm telling you, every symbol of that wedding became more poignant to me. And you know that part where we, where the, where the groom and the, and the bride kiss each other? You know that little thing we do? Everybody always kind of snickers. You know that? We always kind of look at each other and go, oh, they're cool. You know what that kiss thing's all about? In the early church, they said the only way a marriage could ever be fused, where you could have two people becoming one, is if the breath of God, the Spirit of God is passed between two people. So the symbol of that connection, that union, is that kiss in the church. As an example of the fact that somebody in the world can actually accept another person, not by your own ability, not because you're just simply nice, but if you're filled with the Spirit of God, a level of acceptance comes that no one else in the world who's not a Christian has ever experienced. Now that's a level of living I pray before I go to heaven, Jesus says, Bill, I am doing that in you. Because most of the time, that's the first place we turn people off. You don't have what I have. You don't look like I look. You don't have my background. And all of a sudden, we get these these huge barriers in marriages, in families, between people who don't quite smell like us or look like us. It's an astounding thing how, how long the church has been this, I don't know, a face of not real love. A face of, until you come up to my standards, boy, gal, I'm not letting you in. The Lord says, no. If you want to be the face of my heart in the world, 
you've got to accept each other just as I've accepted you. Now, the next one, if you have your Bible still open, or if you, if you, I think they're showing these up behind me. I don't, I'm afraid to look and see what else is happening up there. But anyway, the next one is, is 1419, all right? Yeah. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Building up. So the first one is simply being a friend, an accepting, warming, welcoming person. And that doesn't mean your personality's got to be perfect. It just means your heart, welcoming, accepting, willing to be opened to others who are unlike you. But then secondly, the Lord says through Paul, he says, I want you to build up each other. The word is actually a building term. It actually means putting a brick. It means every time I come into your context, I want to build you higher than when you came in. I want to, I want to be a part of, of encouraging your life. And there are a lot of one another's like this, encouraging, pursuing, helping, building, comforting one another. I'd say most of the words that have one another after them are this perspective. I'm not just a friend to you, I want to build your life. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, I hope anyway, you've bumped into Oswald Chambers somewhere. Oswald Chambers and his, his devotional books and his books have changed my life. And... Um, and uh, in one of those books, I came across this sentence, and it's so, it's so unusual that it shocked me. He said this, every person I ever meet, I have one thing in mind, that person perfect in Christ. And I thought, that, you know, that's why we still read his books. Because that's all you can tell in his spirit. That's all he cares. He doesn't care how you, what you think about him. He doesn't care if you reject him. He looks at us, he writes to us, and he says, all I care about is you perfected, made whole, made complete in Christ. Now, you can trust a person like that. I read a psychologist recently who says the constant tenor in most Christian, not even unchristian, Christian homes, the constant tenor is this word, belittlement. That's how we relate to each other. That's our humor. We belittle each other. Now, that's, that's tearing down. That's using your, your mouth, your mind to tear people down. And we get so used to it. I've gotten so used to it that my precious wife has said, you know, Bill, you've got to understand something. The tone of your voice, it just, it doesn't, it tears away at me. Now, most guys in the room who are married, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. We were having a fun time with some folks a few years back, you know, games, and we were just laughing, and I I, I thought it was a great evening. Got upstairs to the room, my wife was in tears. And of course, my first thought was, what did I do? You know, I, I'm sure I made a... I, so I, I, I fearfully said, Honey, what, what, what did I say? It wasn't you. I thought, Oh, thank God. It wasn't, it wasn't me this time. But then she kept going. She said, Did you realize what was happening downstairs? I said, You mean besides the game and the fun and the laughter and the drinks and the, the chips? No, I didn't understand. She said, Did you realize that gal was tearing me down all night long? And I said, No, honey, I, I didn't recognize that. Typical of me. Well, she said she was using me sarcastically all night long. Now, this is the honest truth. The next morning, I went downstairs and found a, a dictionary because I didn't know what sarcasm meant. I, I had never thought about sarcasm. You know what sarcasm means? It's two words in Greek, again, smashed together. Flesh eater. That's what sarcasm is. Flesh eater. I thought to myself, it's interesting how often we in the body of Christ use sarcasm, use belittlement. Watch your humor. 
Watch, watch the way you talk to your friends, your, your, the guys you know, the gals you know. It's interesting. And when somebody's always focused on in, encouraging, always focused on, on building, they almost seem weird because we're not used to that kind of language. We're used to the tearing down, I want you to be less than me or at least equal to me. Don't you dare be cooler than me or smarter than me. I'm going to bring you down to size. Rather than saying, you know, the only desire I have in my life is to build you up. Now, I'm very blessed. I know I am. But when I was growing up, my, my folks, I, they, had a, they had a wonderful love relationship. And I know that's very unique. And I don't take it for granted. But they did this thing that really, really made me mad. It was, it was before I was a Christian. And my mom and my dad, they were just kind of syrupy, kind of lovey-dovey. just made me sick. I, I, I can't tell you how to. It just made me in my skin crawl. Just grow up or act or whatever. Anyway, so I was a non-Christian in a Christian home. I didn't understand grace. And I remember watching them when they had guests over. It would always be after the kids had to go away from the table. They would, they would sit in the living room. My mom would get coffee and some dessert. And then it would start. I could see it when her little hand would go over my, and touch the back of my dad's neck. Oh, great. Here we go again. And she would say something like, you know, I think my husband is the best preacher in the entire world. And the other, other wife or whoever would, would try to outdo her. You know, well, my, my husband's the best administrator in the entire universe. And we go back and forth. And I thought to myself, after I became a Christian, what an amazing picture to have in life. I don't remember one time my dad ever, at the expense of my mother, tearing her down. Not one time. All I can remember is the only competition I can really remember is the competition on how to outdo the other in building the other person up. To this day, every time my mom talks, she'll say something about how marvelous my father is. Every time. Now, can you imagine living in a situation like a church in Salt Lake City where that's the, the only competition is how can I outdo you in making you sound good? That's my, the only problem we're having is you do it more than me. And I'm going to beat you at that. I'm going to make sure you're better than me. That I say more encouraging things than you do to me. What an amazing thing. If that were to actually happen in a marriage with teenagers. In a, in a, in a culture which tears down at every point. I mean, do you understand what's happening here? This is not warmed over Buddhism. This is a gift of God out of heaven in the flesh. Jesus says, if you want to know the face of love, I've showed up and I accepted you and all of you know exactly what that meant when you realized what I accepted, what I took in, what I want to change, yes, but what I took in was a bunch of garbage and I accepted you and now I want you to be the face of love in this world and I want you to accept those who are unlovely as I've accepted you. And by the way, I want you to build one another up in the exact same way. It's interesting. That word build up, there are two words in Greek for build up. The second word is the word that we use for paraclete, the Holy Spirit. I think it's eight times in the New Testament. Eight times it says we are to be the paraclete to one another. You want a comfort? You want the comforter to come? You want the Holy Spirit to come? The Lord says, all right, He'll come when you comfort somebody else. I was in the, the British Museum with my family. We'd come back and forth from Asia as missionaries and stopped there. And I, I saw this, this, this tapestry on the wall. 
And the tapestry uh, had a really interesting thing. It was, there was an army headed this way. So you saw these spears headed toward you. And then in, on the front, on the front foreground, was another army looking toward you with their eyes wide open in fear, running toward. So you had the, the army chasing this army, and this army was toward. And there was only one helmet turning the other way toward the, the, other, the oncoming army. One helmet. And he had a spear like this. And on the bottom of it, in Old English, it said this, King George comforts his men into battle. I thought, that's a weird use of the word comfort. You know, comfort means you feel good or not. No, the word actually means to strengthen, to enable, to come with strength, to, to say with strength, listen, your life is going out of, out of control. You need someone to come alongside and to guide, and it can't just be Jesus. That's the lie of most evangelicalism. If I just let Jesus come, if I just let Jesus, Jesus says, I will come, and I'm coming right through you. I want you to be my hands and face of comfort to a person whose life is spinning out of control. And most of the time we say, oh, that's too much for me. I'm not going to risk that. I've been through enough pain, enough rejection. The Lord says, well, okay, how's this going to work? I was walking through our uh, cafeteria. My last year, I was 22. And this guy from the soccer team, is that, is that funny or is that, is that typical? I don't know. It was a long time ago, ages ago. But anyway, my, one of the guys from the soccer team, Tim, came up to me and he said, you know what, you've got a stupid life. And I said, well, Tim, thanks. I love you too. You know, something I, thought, I couldn't believe. He said, That's what, you have a stupid life. Now, this is me. I know nobody else here. This is me. I was focused on the American dream. I didn't want to be a missionary any longer. I didn't want to be in ministry, doggone it. I wanted to be an American with 16 cars and a big house and a, you know, all that stuff. I just wanted it. Give me it. And Tim said, it's very clear to all of us who know you that God has called you into serving him for all your life, but you're fighting it. And your life is a stupid life. I said, Tim, I can't, I can't tell you how much that really warms the cockles of my heart to have you say that I'm so st-. He said, listen to me. I want to meet with you every day at lunchtime. Everybody else will be eating. We're going to pray. We're going to pray about your stupid life. Now, I was, I was so arrogant, spiritually arrogant, I wasn't going to say, well, I'm not going to pray. So I went in my spirit grumblingly up to this second-story dorm room, the first lunch, because my tummy was grumbling, but I, wa- I wanted to eat, not pray. And Tim started in, praying for my stupid life. And you know what? The first day I was angry. Second day, I started to say, you know what? I need to maybe think about this. I've never had anybody pray. Another man. My mom, yeah, my, but another man? Pray for my life for an hour? He prayed about everything. The purpose, the goal, the fruit, my marriage, my children, the, the, the influence, the legacy, just over my dumb little life. And by Friday, I was actually praying about my stupid life. I was actually able to say, you know, I think every goal of my life is wrong. Every purpose I've thought about is diametrically opposed from the one I call my Lord. And by the second week, the next Friday, I said, Tim, it's enough. I understand. The Lord is speaking. Thank you. And I still, every time I think about where I I am in life, I thank the Lord for one man who comforted me into reality. You want to be the face of love? 
the Lord says, accept as I've accepted and build. Build into each other the life that you've received. Now, there's another one. The third one is this. Again, let me, let me use the word as the foundation of this. I think it goes back in chapter 12. Yeah, it's in chapter 12 and verse, uh, verse 10. It reads this way. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, there are a bunch of these. A bunch of these in terms of honor and preference. But the word I use, so you have friend as the first frame of this face of love. The, the second frame would be the focus of, of one that's being a builder. Now is this aspect of serving. Now I know that word always comes up for all religions, serving. Christians, we serve. I mean, even today, you're going to be serving the poor. So my question was to myself, Lord Jesus, how can this really be truly a, a revelation of your life in mine? Not just being kind, not just being good by American definitions. How can I know this is true serving? I came across a book, and if you've not read this book or don't have it, you need to grab it. It's really something. It's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's astounding how often this guy comes up as sort of a helper even for us today. Saw so much that most of us never see. And Bonhoeffer says this. He said, you know, it's interesting. If you have a a life where people serve, and then you have Christians who serve. It's a very different kind of service. So that's what I was, that was the question I was having. How can my service be different from other services? I, how can it be truly be Christian? He said, well, the thing is this. Without Jesus, when you serve somebody, if you're without him now, you're always serving immediately. That means your life is directly imposed upon the other person's life. There's no one in between. Because there's no other God who cares. There's no other spiritual reality that cares. It's just me serving the poor. And when it's just you and me, when it's just immediately you, me doing for you, he says what you end up doing is you absorb the person you're serving. You make them be the end result of your service. And it produces a perverted relationship every time. He said the beauty about a Christian service is no one serves anybody immediately. There's always one person between you and the other person. And that person is the Holy Spirit. And so what you do is you serve God, and what God does is He applies that service to other people. That way when I serve my wife, or serve my children, or serve you, I'm not serving with you, to you, at you. I'm serving the Lord. And He's able to express the benefits to your life that you need so that I'm not hooking you saying, okay, I've done this for you, now you need to give back to me. The difference in Christian service is we're not serving the person directly, we're serving God. You know, it used to bug me. I'd, I'd, Mother Teresa, she'd talk about seeing the face of Jesus in the poor. I'd say, what are you talking, that's some kind of mystical, unreal thing, seeing the face of Jesus, what do you mean? But now I understand she's exactly right. She was saying, I don't serve to get something back I don't serve, I, want, I don't want people to recognize me. I just want to serve Jesus. And if I serve Jesus, he's able then to serve the people. His face is expressed through this face. His hands through my hands. And there is no self possible in that kind of service. How many of us in this room could say, if we were honest, Bill, you know, my service has got all kinds of hooks. Oh, yeah, I'll do th- nice things but I'm always sort of grumbling about it or waiting until the person responds back. What a joy. No, what a reality in the church when somebody wakes up and says, you know what, 
Service isn't about me either. I need to be a friend, just like Jesus accepted. I need to build, just like Jesus. Do you think Jesus ever tore anybody down? Do you think he ever said one sentence that tore anybody's personality down? Do you think he ever made fun of anybody in order to detract from their essence? I can guarantee you it never happened one time. And when he served, he didn't serve like this. What are you going to give to me? You owe me. It's an amazing thing when true Christian servants, when the, when the pronouns change and all of a sudden by the Holy Spirit's power, the I, me, how am I doing, all of a sudden it becomes one another. You matter more. Did you hear what Paul said? Honor each other with an honor that is beyond your own self-honor. To accept and to honor above yourself the other person. Now, either that's a pipe dream, and some people say, yeah, that'll never happen. Or some Christian says, you know what? I'm going to test that. Lord, if you've got something for me, I want you to come and to fill me with your spirit to the place where I don't serve anybody with hooks. Try it for a week. See what happens. Now, there's one more. There's one more. Let's look at the, again at chapter 15. And I believe it's, it's verse 14. Yeah, 15, 14. This is, a, this is an interesting one. Really, just in terms of time's sake, I really want to just look at the last phrase. He's talking about how the Romans are able to deal with each other in their church, but he says, and you're able also to admonish one another. That's an interesting word, admonish. But if you, if you have your Bibles and flip down to verse 16, Paul describes himself this way. He says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. Now, what I've done is try to keep it in one book because these, these hundred references occur all over the New Testament. But if I'm, if I'm seeing it right, what Paul's saying is, I want you to be like me. I serve like a priest, and I want you to serve like a priest. So the fourth, what, f- part of the frame of, of this face of love is an accepting friendship, a building encouragement, a, a service that is not self-centered, and then there's this priestly thing now the first three are things you do and the problem for most of us christians is we like doing because we like being we know like our our, like a report card we like to see how we're doing so those can be perverted serving building befriending we can make those but when you move to this fourth level it's a whole new arena it's a whole new level now we don't use the word priest very often because it freaks us out but over and over again, the Bible gives us this a picture. In fact, when God called Israel into existence, he said, by the way, I want you to be two things, a kingdom and a priesthood. I want you to be a priesthood, all of you, everybody a, a priest. And sure enough, when Luther came along, he said, you know, I think all of us should be truly priests, men, women, boys, girls, we're all priests to the world and to each other. It's a freaky thing when you realize, like I have been for three decades or more in the church, thinking, I wonder how often I've come to this service, this prayer meeting, thinking to myself, Lord, I am to be a priest in this context. Now, what do priests do? Priests bear other people in their hearts. Now, I don't want to blow anybody's mind. If you're, if you're new to Jesus or you're testing this thing out, let me just tell you this. If you're, if you're not a Christian this mo- in morning in this place, this, you'll find out someday, especially if you come to Jesus, that the only reason you're here this morning, and if you come to him, the reason why you come to him is because somebody else has borne you in their heart. 
all of my rebellion. I was a rebel all the way through high school. I hated Christianity. I hated my parents. I didn't like this church thing, this missions thing. I was just opposed to the whole stupid thing. And then I realized that my parents were burying me in their souls. I used to leave the house and get drunk, you know, and come or stone, whatever it was, come back. And I would be staggering in toward my bedroom. And my mom would be by the couch. She would have been there since I left the house. And I would, I would, in the morning, I'd walk and I'd find two spots on the couch where her tears had been hitting the, the couch cushion all evening long, praying for this, this recalcitrant, angry, dumb boy, wrecking his life. And I realized the only way I could see anything about Jesus is when somebody else bore me. He bore me, yes. But he said, I need somebody else to bear this boy in their hearts. And some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got someone in your family who's not a Christian. Spouse, child, cousin, nephew. They don't, they don't care one whit about Jesus. And your heart is so burdened, it is about to break. And the Lord says, that's exactly right. You keep on. Because if you bear him, if you bear her, there's an opportunity for me to work in a way that only Jesus can work if he can find a priest. We talk about intercessory prayer a lot. You know, interse- Basically, when I hear that word, all, the only thing I can think of is priest. That's what, that's what that is. It's carrying the world. And sometimes people carry nations on their hearts. Sometimes they carry neighborhoods. Sometimes they carry houses. I just, I, the Lord can show you, but if you're not carrying somebody, I can guarantee you this, the face of love is not being expressed. And in this marvelous church, K2, and by the way, I've been praying for you since you, before you were even born in this room. When this began to be a dream in Dave's heart and Susan's heart, we began to pray. And we were freaked out when they went this far across the country to this Utah place. But we began to pray and, and, and sought the Lord. And we sensed Every time we talked, the Lord was birthing this burden in them. And they mentioned Sugar House and the burden of, for that community. And, and down, it, just, it was so clear. There was nothing in it for them. They were just saying, Lord, lead us to a place where you can birth a burden. And you know what? You're in this room. I'm here standing in front of you. What an honor. I'm here because of that burden. You're, you're the result of somebody carrying you, and you didn't even know it, in their hearts. And I can guarantee you there's somebody else in the world who wants to find reality, and unless you take their life in your life, interceding, praying, carrying, they will never meet Jesus. You check it out. I wish we had time to go through the whole New Testament. It's astounding how often Jesus says to his disciples, unless you go, they won't know me. If you don't show up and speak, they'll never hear my voice. That's amazing. We think, God, you ought to be able to come and smash people, make them. Listen, the Lord Jesus says the exact opposite. If you don't go, I can't reveal myself. And that's true in Salt Lake City. That's true in this room. I don't know if I'm hitting where you are at all today. But we can talk a lot about the shuns of, saint, of Christianity, justification, sanctification, regeneration. It comes down to these things for me. If he's changed my life, there's a whole new perspective. 
on the way I meet you. And by the way, I only sensed acceptance when I walked in this morning. I didn't sense anybody going like this to me. He says, if you want to be like me, I want you to be a builder. I want to remove sarcasm. I want to remove every form of belittlement in your spirit toward those who are around you, that you can be one who's always thinking, that person, perfect in Christ, whole, complete. I'll do and what say whatever comforts them into the level of life, Jesus, you have for them. Show me what that is. And Lord, I also want to be one who serves. Not like this, but I want to see who they are and serve through you. Serving you and you touch their lives exactly as you need to. And Lord, this is a tough one, but I want to bear in my heart whoever you lay on my heart. A few years ago, my wife and I had a, had a great privilege. Uh, we, Diane contacted one of the most famous living missionaries that, well, I think she's still probably the most famous of all. Really, really well known in the, in the 20th century. And now she's, she's getting older, so people don't talk about her much any longer. But she's a precious woman. Her name is Helen Rosevere. And she was a, a doctor in, the, in Congo when it was full of all kinds of problems. Still is, but it was really bad in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And uh, so she came to our house. And each night I would ask her when we were there at the supper, I'd, I'd say, Helen, would you just tell our kids this story about your life? Because we knew her life pretty well, read her books and things. And so she would share with our kids these beautiful stories. I said, would you tell the, the, the story about the time when, when the Lord really spoke to you about your, your, your selfishness? And she immediately knew, immediately knew what I was talking about. And so she, because for the kids' sake, not for her own, she, for my kids' sake, our kids, she, she shared the story. She said, yeah, I've been a missionary. I'd, I'd gone to serve the Africans in deepest, darkest Africa. She said, isn't that, isn't that what every Christian's afraid of? If you follow Jesus, you're going to go to Africa the center of it, and you have to serve people. She said, well, I did it, and I was kind of proud of it. And so I got there, and she said, what are these stupid Africans? She said, they just couldn't do anything right. I would teach them, and they couldn't do anything right. And so she would, she would nurse, and she would doctor, and she would surgeon, and she would build walls. She had to do everything. She would teach these dumb people how to do things. And before you know it, she, they'd forget or make a mistake, and they'd come, oh, Buana, which means Lord, by the way, Buana, can you help well, she was doing surgery one day, and what, the head nurse came in and said, Buana, the, the building is falling apart. And she walked out, and she saw this building they were trying to build. And they, they didn't use the cement right, and the bricks were falling in, she, and was, the wall was caved in. And she stomped over, and she oh, didn't swear, but she's like, you idiots. I, I gave up marriage. I gave up England to come to this godforsaken country, and this is what I get. People who can't do anything right. I've taught you. You can't even build a wall. So she grabbed a brick and began to put it on top of the brick. Well, she cut herself. And the head nurse was right there. And the head nurse grabbed her hand and, and said, Lord, Buana, you, you, have, you have red blood like us. She said, yes. She said, well, we thought you had blue blood. Well, Helen knew. Sometimes it takes that kind of a tragedy to realize her heart was full of herself. I'm obeying, I'm going, I'm doing, and you, you don't get it. I've been here, you don't, you don't get it. She was, she was uncovered. Everything about her evangelical life was herself. She'd done everything for her, not for Jesus, not for the poor, not for the black. It was for her. 
She was uncovered and smart. Like, unlike most Christians, she didn't hide it. She faced it. And she, I love this part. She said, I went to my pastor's house, an African. It took her, I think, I forget, four hours. She just put her, her bike in a rut. That's what you do in Africa. Get it in a rut and it just goes. And she, she ended up at her pastor's house. And she spent an entire week weeping and crying, Lord, what is so wrong? How could I have missed you? I, I thought I was a Christian. I, there's nothing about me that's loving. They can't see you in me. They see the exact opposite. They see a lordship, a blue blood. They don't see you. So she was by a, by a, a campfire with her pastor, very wise man, didn't try to fix her, didn't try to make it easy. She, he just let her weep and pray and read her Bible for a whole week. And they were behind, by this fire. He could speak English. And, and she said, sir, would you tell me what you see when I walk in the room? What's wrong with me? He said, do you want to know? Do you really want to know? She said, yes. I'll die if you don't tell me. What is wrong with me? And he said, well, Helen, every time he took his stick on the dirt, every time you walk in the room, all I see, all we see is one huge I. I. I'm here. I'm important. I'm here to fix you. I'm here to help you. He said, but if you'll let Jesus come by his spirit, he can take, and he took that stick, He can take his life and he can cross the eye out. And she said, that's what I need. He said, that's exactly right. Jesus can cross the eye out and he can turn you inside out toward those you never have been able to love. Well, she was transformed. A Christian now, transformed into the face of love. She got back to that Compound where the hospital was. The head nurse was, had been waiting. They'd been waiting all week, waiting, waiting for her. They were waiting through the night. They got up, saw her bike coming. They ran to the gate. And the moment the head nurse ta- saw her, she said, Buana, something is different. Something has changed. And Helen took all those nurses into her arms on that front porch and began to tell them what Jesus had done for her. And from that point... Nothing else came from her life but a flow of redemptive love that to this day is touching countless thousands of Congolese with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to make a difference in Salt Lake? I'm telling you, welcome, build, serve, bear. That's the face of love. And Jesus says, I will, I've chosen by my incredible humility to depend upon my body, the body of Christ, to extend that life to the world. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, a Christian says, I think I'm getting it. Jesus, come and take the eye out. And he says, man, I've been waiting a long time for that. He can cross it out. And the result is self-giving love. Would you pray with me? Lord, Jesus Christ, it is your body that has made all the difference in all of the universe. You came in the flesh, the God who made the universe. And what you came, when you came, you came stooping and serving and washing feet, helping and healing and building. And then you, 
our great high priest, you laid your life down so that everyone who believes in you might receive eternal life. But Lord, you weren't finished then. You just began to start. You began to start with a group of people who didn't know much, didn't know how to act. But when you filled them with your spirit, all of a sudden they began to look just like you in a small community which grew exponentially because there was nothing about them involved. It was all about you. Lord, we believe that kind of life is still possible in 21st century America. We believe with all of our hearts. But Lord, it's not going to be anybody else. It's got to be me. You've got to start here, right here. So correct, heal, speak, change, put to death. Whatever it is you need to do, clothe me with humility. Whatever it means so that the one another's of your own heart and mind can be made real in my life. Now, Lord, we're going to spend some moments in worship, worshiping you. But don't let us get lost in worship without the understanding that once we've seen your face, the only way to turn now is to the world with that same face, that same openness redemptive, cleaning, encouraging openness that you came to give to us. And if that happens, we will give you praise, our Lord and Savior, in your wonderful name. Amen and amen.